I was watching a movie that came out in 1988, just 21 years ago. The movie reminded me how quickly technology has changed. It was a suspense movie. One of the characters, a detective, was waiting for the results of a ballistic test to come back on a weapon that had been used to commit a murder. As he was driving in a car, in his car, you heard a number of beeps. He reached down and pulled up a pager. He drove to the nearest phone booth and called the number on the pager. I mean, most of you would think that we were communications deprived if we had to go back to pagers and payphones. I mean, if you could even find a payphone. And some of you don't even know what a pager is. It's hard to even imagine communication back in the first century. The message first needed to be painstakingly written down on parchment. It took as long for the the letter to get from point A to point B as it took the person carrying the letter to get from point A to point B. It seems likely that Paul sent the same courier, Tychicus, with letters to Ephesus on the coast, Colossae, neighboring Laodicea, and to Philemon. The time it took to make the trip from Rome to Asia would have totally depended on sailing conditions on the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, just think how rapidly two-way communication has evolved. The telegraph mid-1800s, the telephone, late-1800s, pagers, mid-1900s, widespread use of cell phone, late-1900s. It's it's really not until the last 25 years that email has really taken off. Facebook has only been around for 16 years, now boasting 2 billion users. Many would argue that social networking culture has eroded the concept of authentic friendship, and I would agree. A Facebook friend may be someone with whom you've had a close, lifelong relationship, or someone you barely know, a friend of a friend of a friend. The promise of social media was that it was going to bring people together globally, The reality is that people who are heavy users of social media actually feel more isolated and alone than those who are moderate users. Social media platforms are a poor substitute for face-to-face relationships in which you can really get to know someone else and you can allow that person to get to really know you. These last few verses of Colossians are ones that you might be tempted to skip over. After all, they're just some personal messages posted on this first century equivalent of a Facebook wall. It's easy to forget that Colossians 4, 7 through 18, are just as much the word of God as the rest of the book. That God has chosen to be preserved for us. And there's really quite a bit to glean about God's grace, especially if you're aware of some of the backstories that we'll look at today. We learn about the diversity and depth of true friendships 
relationships among professing believers. We will see both the delights and disappointments of relationships in the church. We read a wonderful testimony of dedication to Christ and to other followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that Paul's network of true friends was a dedicated group. We meet Tychicus in the book of Acts. He was one of the men who accompanied Paul with a huge collection for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, Acts 20, verse 4. These are high compliments that Paul gave to Tychicus. Beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. These deep marks of Christian character are what really count in Christ's kingdom. It was important for Paul to send a trusted man like Tychicus along with this letter. There's so much that you can't communicate in a letter or an email. Besides bringing them the letter, Tychicus would fill them in on Paul's circumstances and answer any questions they might have. Now I want us to think about the diversity among Paul's dearest friends. One of Paul's most valued friends was a runaway slave, Onesimus. Paul returned Onesimus to his master Philemon along with a letter that we still have in our Bibles. Writing to Philemon, the master of Onesimus, Paul urges Philemon to receive Onesimus now as his brother in Christ. Verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I mean, do you realize what revolutionary statements these were in first century culture? Paul speaks of Onesimus, a runaway slave, as a faithful and beloved brother. In the Church of Jesus Christ, distinctions like slave and master were no longer important as far as standing in Christ Jesus. Onesimus, the runaway slave, now a believer in Christ, was one of them, a native of Colossae, running, uh, returning as a member of the Christian fellowship. It's clear from Paul's letter to Onesimus's master, Philemon, that Paul wanted their lives to be a living example of his teaching about slaves and masters, which we studied earlier in this letter. Again, in terms of diversity, we read in Colossians 3 how Jesus Christ breaks down all barriers among those who come to him by faith. Colossians 3.11, creating a new society in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man. But Christ is all and in all. Now we see this fleshed out in real life. Paul, born a Jew, lived this out. Three of his fellow workers were eth ethnic Jews. Aristarchus, Mark, and a man we never hear about again. 
Jesus' justice. All the rest were Gentiles, non-Jews. At one time, Paul's ethnic background was the most important fact of his life. First and foremost, he was a Jew. Now the most important fact of his life is his identity as a Christian. That was all that mattered. What a witness to the power of the gospel when these barriers that so often divide men and women come tumbling down in light of the power of the gospel. Race, ethnicity, social standing, wealth, education, all the other things that tend to divide us are no longer of any importance whatsoever. Our new identity in Jesus Christ is our primary identity. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. That's all that should really matter. Now, think of the depth of the Apostle Paul's friendships. Aristarchus was a native of the city of Thessalonica who came to Christ and became a traveling companion of Paul. Aristarchus found himself in the middle of a riot when the citizens of Ephesus realized that Christianity was a threat to their place as the center of the worship of the goddess Artemis. Acts 19.29 The city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. God intervened and got them safely out of town. Aristarchus traveled with Paul as a prisoner. Paul was a prisoner from Jerusalem to Rome. He was in that fierce storm that destroyed the ship on which they were sailing. So it's safe to say that Aristarchus was no fair-weather friend. (laughs) Paul refers to Aristarchus as his fellow prisoner. This probably means that Aristarchus voluntarily shared Paul's house arrest in order to minister to his deeds. Again, that's a depth of friendship that most of us have never experienced. We're coming full circle. We met Epaphras way back in chapter 1, verse 7. Epaphras served a triangle of churches in the Lycus River Valley, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. These churches all lay within a day's travel of one another. Epaphras was what we might call a prayer warrior, consistent and faithful in prayer for those in the churches he served. I want you to notice what it was that Epaphras prayed for most fervently. He prayed for their maturity and rock-solid assurance in the faith. This illustrates the theme of our series in Colossians. Pastor Kyle entitled this sermon series, One Word, Complete. Complete comes from Paul's great goal for the church in Colossae. Here it is from Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete 
in Christ. That's what Epaphras was praying for as he labored earnestly in prayer for the believers in Colossae. He prayed that they might stand perfect. And the the translation perfect is the same word translated complete all the way back in 128. Now let's be clear that when we talk of someone becoming complete in Christ, we're, we're not saying that we can get to some higher state where we never sin. Where, where we never have any place further to grow. Maturity may be a better word to use. Because even though we can and should be maturing as believers, we never get to the place where, where we've matured as much as we could, as we should, where we've arrived. We've all got areas in our lives where there's plenty of room for further growth. So often we pray for changed circumstances for ourselves and our fellow believers. How much more important to pray for progress toward maturity and full assurance in the faith. If someone is maturing, has full assurance in faith, then the circumstances won't jerk us around quite as much. Luke was another of Paul's companions, at least for a while, while he was under house arrest in Rome. Luke was a Gentile, not a Jew, who was most likely converted through Paul's ministry. Luke wrote one of the four accounts of Jesus' life that we call Gospels. He also wrote the only history of the early church, the book our Bibles calls Acts. Luke was an eyewitness of many of the, of the events he wrote about as one of Paul's traveling companions. Think about the delights of ministering together with other believers. I think perhaps the most encouraging backstory here is the, is the mention of Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Here's Mark's backstory. Acts 13 recounts how Mark went with Paul and Barnabas to assist them on their first missionary journey. He ministered with them on the island of Cyprus. But when they headed over to the mainland, Mark left them and returned uh, to Jerusalem. When Mark bailed from the ministry, that did not set well with the Apostle Paul. Barnabas and Paul returned to Antioch after they'd completed that first missionary trip. They spent some time ministering there together in Antioch. Then Paul sensed sensed that it was time to head off again. Here's the account from Acts 15, 36 through 40. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. 
Aren't you glad that the Bible is such an honest book? That it doesn't whitewash things? The greatest heroes of the faith are portrayed in all of their human weakness. Our faith doesn't rest on men, but on Jesus Christ. Perfect God, perfect man. Paul and Barnabas each took a principled stand and wouldn't back down. Given that backstory, what we read in Colossians is so encouraging. Apparently, Paul's attitude toward Mark changed dramatically. In this letter, it sounds like Mark has a very close relationship with Paul. Paul's second letter to Timothy was written at an even later time, probably not long before Paul's death as a martyr. In that letter, Paul says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in service. Listen, Paul could have asked for any number of other men, but he asked specifically for Mark to work alongside him in ministry as he looked death in the face. That, my dear friends, is the power of grace. Relationships among believers never need to be permanently stuck. Grace given and received is a wonderful lubricant in families, between friends, among church members. The power for reconciliation and reconcil uh, restoration in relationships is always available through Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I'd be lying to claim that restoring broken relationships is easy. All I'm saying is that the power is there. It's available through Jesus Christ. More than that, in Christ, there's abundant hope for you when you fail. Here's a young man, Mark, who bailed out as a young man and ran home to mama when the going got rough. But God kept working in this young man until he became one of the small band of men that Paul desired to have ministering with him. Have you failed the Lord and others? I certainly have. Don't despair. God is in the restoration business. It isn't all delight, though. There are disappointments. There is a very sad epilogue to the book of Colossians. Paul sent greetings to the church in Colossae from a man named Demas. Demas is mentioned in the letter to Philemon, written at the same time. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. But then, just a few years later, with Paul facing death, there's this sad postscript in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has, got, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. No details. What snared Demas? A woman? Money? Fear of persecution? We don't know. The bottom line reality is that relationships with professing believers will always have 
their share of disappointment and heartbreak. The Apostle Paul experienced deep heartbreak in relationship with professed Christians. This is part of the reality of life as a Christian. I can guarantee, if it hasn't already, I can guarantee that at some point in your life, you will be deeply wounded by someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Count on it. Margaret and I have experienced this gut-wrenching sense of betrayal. I can guarantee at some time in your Christian life, you will disappoint another brother or sister in Christ deeply. I know that I've let down brothers and sisters many times in my life. How tempting it is to boycott the church after a painful betrayal. If I understand the Bible right, that's never an option for real believers. In some cases, carefully, there may be a legitimate reason to leave a particular local church, but never to become one of the multitude of so-called unchurched Christians. The gospel, the message about Jesus Christ that Paul and the other writers of the Bible proclaim is good news indeed. Every single one of us is an enemy of God by nature and by choice. I'm inviting you to become God's friend today. A friend rather than his enemy. You can know the wonder of having God as your father and millions of believers around the world as your brothers and sisters. When you become a friend of God, all other believers immediately become your friends as well in the truest, deepest sense of that word. How does an enemy of God become a friend? You can't earn friendship with God. The only way to become God's friend is through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus Christ died on the cross was to make true worshipers out of idolaters, friends out of enemies. He died and rose again so that all who trust in him by faith might have eternal life and become one of that host of those who will worship him forever and ever and ever as he richly deserves. The other good news is that once you become a friend of God, he will never unfriend you. Paul concludes the letter with these words. Greet, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. How, just stopping for a minute. How about the dramatic change in the attitude toward women expressed in the New Testament? When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. 
Paul wanted there to be a close relationship between the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea, about 10 miles uh, away from each other. Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea, which has been lost and isn't in our Bibles. Once his letter was read in the congregation to which it was addressed, he wanted them to swap letters and read the Laodicean letter in Colossae, the Colossian letter in Laodicea. We don't know who Archippus was. From the message Paul sent to him, it sounds as if he was slacking somehow in his God-given ministry, needed a word of exhortation. It was customary in those days for someone to dictate letters. There was, however, always the danger that someone would compose a letter claiming that it came from the Apostle Paul. That's why 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Apparently, Paul had a very distinctive way of signing his letters so people could be certain that it came from the Apostle Paul. Paul asked them to remember his imprisonment. He wants them to remember that he is in prison, to pray for him, and especially for the ongoing progress of the gospel. You've probably heard about all the surveys that have been conducted focused on the unchurched or the de-churched. Polster George Barna talks about a class of people that, in his words, love Jesus but not the church who love Jesus, but not the church. They say they love Jesus, but seldom darken the door of a church. To the Apostle Paul, the idea of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and not a member of a local church would be unthinkable. I hope you see the problem with someone saying, I love Jesus, but not the church. That the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. How far do you think that you would get with me if you said, Paul, I like you, but I can't stand your wife? <laughs> I can tell you, we'd have big problems. <laughs> we go together. Just like Jesus and his church. Here, here's something I found interesting. Guess where Barna found the greatest percentage of those who said, I love Jesus, but not the church in the South. Let's bring it closer to home. According to a recent survey, I think Kyle has quoted this. Less than 20% of the people of Madison are actively involved in the, the life of an evangelical church. If you live in Madison, you can probably informally confirm those results by noticing how many of your neighbors claim to be Christians but are no-shows in any church. Kyle is often quoted Acts 2.42 to point to the unique DNA 
of the Church of Jesus Christ in the first century. A way of living and personal interaction that exerted a powerful attraction on the people in the pagan culture of that day. This is how Paul described the life of the the church in the first century in Jerusalem. Acts 2.42 And they were continually devoting, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Preaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer. That was the heartbeat of the early church. So simple, yet so powerful that people were coming to faith daily, hearing the gospel, but also seeing it lived out in Christian community. Listen, Luke went on to describe the depth and intensity of the relationships in the church in Jerusalem. Acts 2, 44 through 47. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Some of those same surveys that talk about those who claim to love Jesus but not the church also point to the increasing percentage of young people who are turning away from the church. How have many churches attempted to lure the young people back to the church? By preaching feel-good messages with light gospel content and offering amped-up worship experiences. I was... I was at my favorite store recently, Goodwill. They had a a used fog machine for sale. I was so tempted to buy it and offer it with a straight face to our worship team as a way to enhance our worship experience. Listen, is that really what millennials and other young people are looking for? No, I think that many are looking for genuine fellowship, genuine community, in place of the isolation and loneliness which are fueled by social media. That's a primary reason why extreme exercise programs like CrossFit are so popular. It's not just the exercise that draws young people. It's the community. It's the fellowship. It's the relationships. One commentator, not a Christian, somewhat jokingly spoke about the Holy Church of CrossFit. Listen, there there is no question in my mind that Harvest is committed 
to the clear declaration of the truth of God's word. My question is, are we just as firmly committed to the place of genuine biblical fellowship? Would someone looking for authentic relationships have a better chance of finding them at harvest than at CrossFit? It's a serious question that we need to ask ourselves and to keep asking ourselves as a church. Each human, healthy human being is born with two fully functioning kidneys. We don't know why God has created us this way, because a, a person can function fine with just one kidney. You've probably heard heartwarming stories of spouses, relatives, close friends who make the gutsy decision to donate one of their kidneys to save the life of someone they love. It's not an easy decision, given the pain and risk of surgery. On top of that, the donor no longer has a backup kidney. Even more remarkable, I think, are those few individuals who are willing to donate one of their kidneys to save the life of someone unrelated whose story they've heard about. True biblical friendships should be a lot like unrelated kidney transplant donors. God is calling us to true biblical friendship, costly relationships in the church, the body, the, the bride of Christ. Our model of what it means to be a friend in the Bible sense of the word is more like that of becoming a living, unrelated organ donor than waving at a friend on Facebook. Jesus set the example for us. He died for us who believed while we were still his enemies. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We see several examples of this kind of true self-denying friendship in this closing section of Colossians. People who stuck close to Paul at great personal cost. I'm convinced that the reason we don't sacrifice as gladly or deeply as we should for one another in the body of Christ is that we think of ourselves as unrelated because we're not related to each other by blood or marriage. The reality is that as Christians, we have a bond of relationship that is much deeper, much more lasting than any bond of blood or marriage. We are truly brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible calls us to lay down our lives for one another. Listen, I would hope that if someone at Harvest needed a kidney transplant, there would instantly be a dozen or more people lined up to have their blood tested for a match. If only being a friend to fellow believers was that easy. Just one heroic sacrifice that everybody in the world would know about and applaud. The pattern God is calling us to 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, true Christian friends, is actually much harder. It means looking for ways to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ every day of your life. Providing a meal for someone who's been in the hospital. Giving up a Saturday to pack a moving van. Taking time to sit with a brother or sister who's struggling. Bringing the comfort of your presence and the word of God. Looking, overlooking a slight, forgiving a wrong, inviting that man or woman who's kind of a social misfit over for a meal, offering to take someone's kids for a day because that's the need, even if that might be at the very bottom of your list of things that you enjoy doing. Anonymously sending someone who is struggling financially a gift card for Kroger. I mean, I could go on with that list, filling it out, but I think you get the idea. I think you get the idea. Well, how do you know if you're functioning at the, the level of friendship to which God has called you? I can tell you, you're, you're, no, you're, you're, you're uh, no, nowhere close to the level that God is calling you to in friendship with other believers. Neither am I. But by God's grace, we can grow in loving God and truly loving others for God's sake. You know, you and I can begin today. I think most of us are tempted to use Sunday services as a time to catch up with friends and family. Let me encourage you to resist the temptation and to look instead for someone that you don't remember seeing before at harvest. Give him or her a, a sincere welcome. The other person should leave harvest with this uh, Sunday service at harvest with the sense that harvest is a place where genuine relationships are part of our DNA, the way they were in the church in the first century. Listen, I'm, I'm certain in one sense that even though there have been so many changes in the last few centuries, even decades, that nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Any church that wants to have an impact for the gospel must be a place where the truth is proclaimed without apology and also a true fellowship of believers growing in sacrificing their lives for one another. That was attractive in the first century. That was a powerful witness in the first century. And it can be in the 21st century as well. By God's grace, harvest can become more and more that kind of fellowship.